Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. This week, we look into the science behind airport security. We'll be building bombs in the name of science, seeing how sniffer dogs can lend a paw, and finding out why robocops may be the security guards of the future. Plus, in the news, the science behind fighting flab. Fasting might be the way to lose weight, scientists are saying. Also, with help from a gecko, Spider-Man has become a reality, and why bankers have a tendency to cheat. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Just this week, it was announced that a British-led consortium are planning to send an unmanned robot to the South Pole of the Moon to drill down 100 metres into the lunar surface, retrieve 4.5 billion-year-old rock samples and deposit a time capsule. But this isn't a project paid for by the government. The £500 million price tag for the mission, which is set to launch in 2024, will be completely crowd-funded, meaning public donations are going to support it. As an added incentive, if you donate 60 quid, you can secure some data storage on the time capsule, you can send up perhaps some selfies or your favourite song, and these will get stored on the lunar surface for up to a billion years. Moon expert Ian Crawford is an advisor to the project and with us now to tell us more about it. Hello, Ian. Hello. What are they looking for? Well, it does have a very strong science case, and scientifically... It's important to realise that no space mission ever in the history of the space age has landed at either pole of the moon. So this is a completely unexplored territory. And the south pole of the moon is especially interesting. In particular, the, the surface soils at the lunar poles are very cold. And it's considered quite likely that water and other volatiles delivered by comets may be trapped there. And confirming this would be a key scientific goal of the mission. But also the South Pole of the Moon sits just within the giant South Pole-Aitken Basin, which is the biggest impact structure known in the solar system. And it's on the far side of our moon and it's 12 kilometres deep. And it's deep enough that it may have extracted samples from the lunar mantle, which we haven't got samples of yet. And if we could sample lunar mantle material, then in terms of confirming our theories for the origin of the moon and how similar the moon is to the Earth, then samples of the lunar mantle are of particular scientific interest. So those are the two main things, I think. There are also others. The South Pole of the Moon is a possible site for astronomical observations of the wider universe and various other things. But that's the main the main science case. It sounds like a pretty compelling case and will answer some important scientific questions. Given that the Europeans have just this month spent about a billion getting to a comet to learn a bit more about where our solar system came from, why is this something that is being crowdsourced. Why aren't governments paying for this? 
Well, I don't think these are mutually exclusive, are they? I mean, I think I can see very strong reasons why governments should fund lunar exploration, uh, but then there are very strong reasons why governments should fund the exploration of comets and Jupiter and Mars, and the solar system is a very big place. So I'd be delighted if governments were to spend more exploring the moon, but given that governments and government-funded space agencies don't have the resources to do everything that they would like to do, and arguably they should do, this is an alternative model, really, where people who perhaps think, wish that their governments were spending more, people who actually would be delighted if more of their taxes went on space exploration rather than other things, but that's not happening. This is an opportunity for people who feel like that to get involved. I mean, it's completely voluntary, of course. You just go to the Kickstarter website and contribute if you wish. But if you do think that uh, government should be spending more, in a sense, this is a way for people to... Um, put their money where their mouths are, really, and, and just get involved in space exploration. The average Kickstarter campaign isn't for 500 million though, is it? Oh, this no. is a pretty substantial amount. Oh, no. Do you think you're going to succeed no, and raise no. this money? No, this Kickstarter campaign, no, it's far beyond the, the resources of the Kickstarter. Uh, the Kickstarter is to raise $1 million in order to define the science case, define the engineering requirements, to set in place what would be required to gather this much larger sum of money by public subscription, requires a huge amount of organisation. But the Kickstarter campaign is to raise an initial $1 million, um, essentially, uh, to get the project kickstarted that's why it's called kickstarter Absolutely. Um, let's just return to the moon surface for a moment then so if you are successful and you can get this probe there what will the probe do because we've glossed over that and said it's going to get some samples but how is it going to get those samples and what will it do with them so the key science drivers uh, is to land at the south pole of the moon and to, and to drill to somewhere between 20 metres and 100 metres and extract the samples, which would then be studied with a suite of instruments. And then having done that, you're left with a, um, a hole. And so the question is what to do with it. Now, scientifically, we can use that hole to deploy scientific instruments down the borehole to measure the rate of heat flow from the lunar mantle to in place a seismometer to detect moonquakes and things. But in addition, the idea is having extracted the borehole, drilled the hole for scientific purposes, it's then available in which to place these time capsules. And, and really, 100 metres below the lunar surface at the lunar south pole, essentially this time capsule will be there forever. It'll still be there when the sun becomes a red giant. Will the data still be readable? Because I know that the doomsday laser discs, just 20 years after they were made, can't be read anymore. They've all deteriorated. So, so there, are, there are many possibilities, of course, and I'm not the person to talk to you about them, because <laughs> uh, it's, my, it's my job to advise on the science case. Let's hope that we, A, get there, and B, that I can get my name on it too. I'll be sending you a donation. Thank you very much. Ian Crawford from Birkbeck. He's from the Lunar Mission One. He's on the Science Advisory Panel. Jenny. On to something a bit closer to home now, and we hear a lot in the media about fad diets. You may even have tried a few yourself. One of the more famous ones is the so-called 5-2 diet, also known as intermittent fasting, which involves drastically cutting down calories on just two days a week. But does the science behind it stack up? A new review of the evidence suggests that it might. One of the researchers who's been putting this diet to the test in laboratory mice and in humans is Mark Matson from America's National Institute on Aging, as he explained to Kat Arney. Our work started in animals and we found and others have that if you have the animals fast intermittently, for example, in our lab we have them fast 
every other day. So 24 hours, no food, then they can eat the next day and so on. They can live up to 30% longer. The animals that you're looking at in the lab, presumably you can control their access to food. What's the evidence that this kind of restricted diet may have benefits in humans? Yeah, so far there's been only a few controlled studies. Dr. Michelle Harvey at the University of Manchester, and she works with women at risk for breast cancer because of their family history and also their overweight. There were over 100 women. They were divided into two groups. Uh, one group, we had them reduce their daily calorie intake by 25%, so counting calories each day. The other group, we had them two days a week eat only one modest meal of about 500 calories. We followed them for six months, and we found that both groups lost weight, but the women on what's now called the 5-2 diet lost more belly fat and their ability to regulate glucose was improved more than the women who counted calories every day. What's going on at a molecular level that might explain this? So glucose normally, if you're eating regular meals, is the main source of energy for cells and is stored in the liver. And when that's depleted, which usually occurs in around 12 hours, then what happens is your body starts uh, mobilizing energy from fat so that's one major change that happens, probably explains in part you know, loss of belly fat in, in the study we did. Much more work needs to be done in humans to determine if and which types of intermittent fasting diets would be optimal for health. But let's say that some particular diet was clearly established, for example, the 5-2 diet to be consistently beneficial in many groups of people. Then the issue is how to work this type of eating pattern into the daily and weekly routine. Saying is one thing, but doing is quite another. Whilst the 5-2 approach may have its weight loss benefits, is it actually feasible to periodically fast for months on end? Whilst making a BBC Horizon documentary, Dr Michael Mosley tried fasting for two days a week and he's written a book about his experience. So on a Monday I get up and I have some scrambled eggs for breakfast because the protein keeps you fuller and that's about 180 calories. Then I skip lunch and in the evening I have a pile of vegetables and say a bit of fish and that's probably about another 300 calories. So the whole lot adds up to maybe five, 600 calories. So I do that on Monday, Tuesday, eat normally, Wednesday normally, and on Thursday I kind of do the same thing again. And I did that initially for 12 weeks, and in the course of that I lost around nine kilos. And what was really good is almost all of it was fat. So the, my body fat went down from 28% to 21%. How did you feel particularly on the days when you were restricting your calories, you know, did you feel lightheaded or, or did you just get on with things? I just got on with things. I actually found that I became more energetic. And the evolutionary perspective on that one is that, you know, our remote ancestors, they had feast and famine. If they didn't have food, they couldn't just kind of lie on the floor and wait for food to come. They had to get out there and become more active. And that's what drives you. I think there are lots and lots of myths about food. And one of them is this thing called starvation mode. You know, if you don't eat regularly, then your blood glucose will fall through the floor and you'll feel faint. And it is complete and utter nonsense, along with the idea that if you stop eating, then your metabolic rate immediately slows down. Because the studies I've looked at, where they have taken volunteers, kept them without food for six days, the metabolic rate actually goes up. It's only in periods of prolonged starvation. And when you lose a lot of weight, that your metabolic rate goes down. So there is a lot of myths out there which um, need to be hit over the head. 
as a human being, I go, wow, that sounds amazing. But as a scientist, I go, you're just one person. <laughs> That's not exactly scientific. What does the science say about this kind of approach? Well, the science is very strong, um, certainly from the animal data. Dr. Mark Matson has done a lot of stuff. Chris DeVarity has done a lot of things. Dr. Michelle Harvey up in Manchester has similarly done some pretty big trials. For example, they saw greater fat loss. There were also significantly greater improvements in things like insulin sensitivity and also in inflammatory markers. How important do you think it is that we bring science and proper research to weight loss? I think it's absolutely vital. I think we've applied science to pretty well every other aspect of our life. And I just think that it is hugely important that we look at it um, on the big Studies, obviously, studies are hugely important, but also trying to understand what's happening at the cellular level. And that's what this paper is all about. It is both a description of studies which have been done with humans over quite long periods of time, but is also about the sort of pathways. And that's what makes it interesting, I think. Doctors Michael Mosley and Mark Matson talking to Kat Arney about the 5-2 diet. Have you ever been tempted to try it, Chris? Well, uh, A, I probably don't need to lose much weight, but I'm a big subscriber and fan of the seafood diet. (laughs) Seafood and eat it diet, which is what happens to most people, I think. What do you think at home? If you've tried one of these diets, let us know. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com or follow us on Twitter and tweet at Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. Coming up, how scientists tagging fish are inadvertently ringing the dinner bell for seals, and also why bankers are more likely to behave dishonestly when they're at work. But first, here's one for the kids and comic book fans alike, because Spider-Man has become a reality. Taking their inspiration from the feet of geckos, small lizards which can run up walls and stick to ceilings, scientists in the States have created hand-sized pads that enable a 70-kilogram man to climb straight up a vertical pane of glass. Richard Johnston is a material scientist at Swansea University and he's been taking a look at the new invention, which could even prove useful out in space, as he explained to Chris. Researchers in the US have developed a pad which can attach to a human's hands, which can allow them to scale a sheet glass building, much like the pads on a gecko's foot allows it to scale vertical walls. In the past, people have developed something called a gecko tape as a common term, which mimics gecko's feet in terms of how they adhere to surfaces. But it's always been difficult to scale those up without significant loss in adhesion or stickiness. And how does a gecko's foot enable it to do that and what this person is now doing? Because the paper's quite striking, isn't it? You see this guy standing there going vertically up a sheet of glass. How is he doing it? It is extremely exciting to see that as well. And with geckos, they have toes covered in millions of tiny hairs. So these are typically thinner than a human hair. And on the tip of each of these hairs, so if you imagine a paintbrush, so a paintbrush has the wooden handle, and then at the tip of the paintbrush, you have lots and lots, hundreds and thousands of even finer hairs. And so that's what a gecko has on its feet, millions of individual hairs, which are then tipped with even finer strands. How do the hairs actually generate the adhesion with the surface, though? Each of those tiny hairs utilises something called van der Waals forces, and these are tiny electrical forces between the gecko's hairs and the surface which it's adhering to. And those billions of tiny forces add up to enough force that holds the gecko onto that surface. And the group in America, they've managed to recreate 
what a form of that, but in a sufficiently big pad so that you get a sufficiently big force to hold up a person? Yes, they've come up with an interesting design with slightly different materials properties for the component parts. Whereas the gecko utilizes natural materials like collagen, they've used um, nitinol, which is a nickel titanium based material. So if you were to look at it, it's a pad about the size or just larger than a human hand. And on that pad, there are a number of separate adhesive pads. And so there's around 25. And each one of those individually still has those millions of tiny hairs. So it works on the same principles as the gecko foot in terms of intermolecular forces. Are there any applications beyond just Spider-Man? It's really interesting, actually, because... The actual interface material, so all of these fine hairs, that was developed um, some time ago. It's just the tendons and the material design behind that that's new and this scale-up. But the actual material that they've used has been tested in space and it works. So you can now imagine you've got a scale-up that can hold the weight of a human or something the size of a human that could potentially be used in space. So increasing mobility of astronauts can attach and remove these pads in less than a second. So it's very fast fastening. Even in our human-made built environment, we've designed our um, living spaces to have shiny surfaces, to have vertical flat walls. And so if we can increase human mobility in terms of inspection, construction, then potentially has lots of applications. Where can I order some? That was Rich Johnson. He's from Swansea University talking about the possibilities there for a very real Spider-Man. From dizzying heights now to the underwater world, marine biologists often use electronic tags to keep track of fish populations. A small device is attached to the fish and emits a series of high-frequency pings, alerting researchers to a shoal's location. But a team at St Andrews University have now shown that grey seals have learnt to associate these pings with food. The tags are basically acting as an underwater dinner bell. Greya Jackson spoke to Amanda Stansbury about what this means for our fishy friends. Fish tags are used on several different fish species to track populations and measure the survivability rates of them so we get an idea of how fish stocks are doing. So how do these tags actually work? So what these tags do is we put them on the animals and the tags emit a noise that's high-pitched in frequency. And what they do is when the fish are swimming along and they emit these sounds, we can then pick up the sounds with receivers or listening stations. And by that way, we can track where the fish are and how many tagged fish go past a certain receiving station. So could you picture it a bit like sonar on submarines? You get this boop, boop, boop. Yes, though, the tags that we use, it has a high-frequency tone, so it's a little bit more like hearing an actual sound, and it's a little bit longer. Though it's really interesting because with seals, the frequency of these tags, it's very high frequency, and it's just on the edge of the seal's hearing limits. And indeed, it's way, way, way beyond anything we can hear. These fish tags are emitting sounds at 69 thousand hertz and you and i we can only hear up to twenty thousand hertz so if i played you this and this you can't hear the beeps of the fish tag but given the extremely high frequency of the sounds that these fish tags are emitting it's surprising that seals can detect them at all so what's going on how do they know where these tagged fish are 
instead of maybe hearing this high frequency sound, they might actually hear a click that's created from the onset of the tag sound. Each time the tag produces a sound, it's in a sequence of eight pulses. These pulses are very short and quick, and it results in what sounds like a click when it starts and stops. With a bit of clever digital manipulation, we changed the frequency of the fish tag beeps so it would be within the human hearing range. These clicks essentially act as a giant dinner bell. Fish anyone? Past research had known that the seals might be able to hear these sounds, but our study is the first to show that they learn to use the tags to their benefit and find their prey. Has this behaviour been seen in the wild before? Could it not just be a case of these seals learning to know what these sounds meant within your tests? Currently, there aren't any known studies that have tracked this in wild animals. However, we do think this might be occurring. For example, in wild salmon that have been tagged, some salmon have been tagged with acoustic tags, just like the ones we use, and other salmon have been tagged with silent tag. It doesn't make any noise. And we, when we look at the survivability of these animals, the acoustically tagged salmon are less likely to survive. And presumably, we're thinking that predators might be finding them, and that's why the tags might be having an effect in wild populations. So this is presumably great news for predators, but not so great for their prey, because I'm guessing we're tagging these fish stocks because they're in decline. And given that there's also a lot of research on how these human-made noises like boat engine stuff have negative impacts on marine life, should we therefore be thinking, rethinking even, how we track and monitor not just fish stocks, but also birds and other mammals as well? Uh, yes, and so what's really important with this is when we tag animals, we need to consider the entire ecosystem that they're in and the other animals that are in the environment, whether they can perceive the tag. It's important if we put tags on prey species, if they're around predators, we don't want to inadvertently um, decrease their numbers. But also vice versa, if we were to put tags on predators, then prey might hear predators approaching and evade them. And so we need to be really careful when we introduce these sound systems into an environment on what kind of an impact they'll have. Amanda Stansbury from St Andrews University. It's incredible, isn't it? You think you set out to try and help something and accidentally turn it into lunch. Bankers are amongst the most publicly distrusted professionals at the moment and this appears to be a label that they actually deserve because a new study has shown that when bankers are thinking about banking they are much more likely to behave dishonestly. Researchers at the University of Zurich asked more than 100 financiers to play a coin tossing game and report the number of heads or tails they threw knowing that they would get a financial reward for every head they reported. When they played, after answering questions about their home lives or leisure activities, they totted up the coin tosses honestly. But if they played after being put into a banking mindset by talking about their jobs beforehand, then they began to cheat, really quite badly. Michel Marichal. So we wanted to analyse whether the business culture in the banking industry favours dishonest behaviour. We found uh, in a survey that actually the image of the banking industry is quite poor. So people think that uh, bankers are more dishonest than criminals. We're not only interested in the level of dishonesty, but whether the culture in the banking industry is likely to favor or tolerate dishonest behavior. And what did you do? How did you explore that? The goal is to measure the influence of, of the culture. And this is not an easy task. 
what we did is we randomly assigned bank employees into two different experimental conditions. So in the main experimental group, we reminded the participants of their occupational role by asking them about their professional background. So for example, we asked them what bank they work for or how many years they have been working in the banking industry. This manipulation puts their occupational role into associated norms on top of their minds. And in contrast, we had a control condition asking them a question about their, uh, for example, leisure activity. I see. So what you're trying to do is put them in the banking mindset before they do the tasks in your study or put them into a more kind of outside work mindset and see whether when they're in their workplace mindset, their level of honesty differs. Exactly. So subjects were instructed to flip a coin 10 times and to report the outcome of these coin tosses. And they knew in advance for each coin toss whether they would win 20 US dollars if they flipped heads or if they flipped tails. And because the subjects were unobserved while they were doing this task, it was impossible for us to identify who exactly cheated and who not. But we know that around 50% of the coin flips should have been successful if everyone would have reported honestly. So if you look at the whole group of them together, you can ask, is the proportion who are winning higher than chance would predict? And if so, that's telling you that there's some dishonesty going on. People are misreporting what their real coin flips were. Exactly. And you did this for people when they're in their banking mindset, having been primed by these think-about-your-job words versus people who are thinking about the golf course or going swimming or something. Did you see a difference between those two conditions? Yes, so we have basically two results. When the bankers thought about the leisure time, they were honest on average. So there was not much cheating. But when they were reminded of their occupational role, so when they were primed in the mindset of a banker, then they started to cheat significantly, which suggests the business culture, the norms in the banking industry favor dishonest behavior. How do you think that this finding, which is fairly dramatic, should be taken forward? What should be done and can anything be done to sort this out? Is there any precedent for this sort of situation? The results suggest that banks should actually promote more honest behavior by changing the norms that are associated with the profession as a banker. But this will obviously take time and will require actions from various angles. Many experts have actually suggested that uh, bankers should take a, a professional oath similar to the Hippocratic Oath for Physicians. However, such an oath alone uh, would not be sufficient. It's necessary that banks actually make a detailed analysis of their work routines to find out where and when the employees make critical decisions regarding uh, norm obedience. And this will allow uh, to generate common knowledge about what type of behaviors are actually socially desirable and which not, and also will allow that the peers enforce these new honesty norms. Michel Marachal with a little bit of proof about what many of us probably suspected all along about bankers. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Ginny Smith. On to our main topic for the week now, and we're delving into the science behind airport security. And yes, my phone is in flight mode. Now, travel by air has increased by over 60% in the last decade. The International Air Transport Association, IATA, expect global air traffic to reach 3.6 
billion passenger journeys by 2016. It's a lot, isn't it? Currently, estimates suggest that at any moment in time, there are at least one million people airborne aboard planes all around the world. But... As air traffic grows in this way, so do concerns about smuggling and security, and particularly at the moment, with governments in many countries describing the threat from terrorism as severe. So keeping people safe is a major priority, but the processes can be intrusive and can also cause unpleasant delays at airports. This week, we're looking at how technology, both old and new, can help to alleviate the hold-ups and improve safety. Later, we'll learn how we can use light to detect chemicals dissolved in drinks, and we'll find out how to train a sniffer dog. But first, Jackie Akavan is Professor of Explosive Chemistry at Cranfield University and works on how best to detect explosives, which she does by manufacturing them in the lab. Hi, Jackie. Hello there. So what kind of systems do we currently have for detecting explosives that you're testing your, your homegrown ones on? Uh, at the moment, the new systems is the SOARS, which is a spatially offset Raman spectroscopy, where you can shine light and it'll actually go through a bottle into your liquid explosive. It's very, very new technology and it's being actually brought into airports at the moment. So hopefully in the future, we should be able to go through airports a little bit quicker than we are now. And would that mean that I'd be able to take my bottle of water onto the plane with me rather than having to empty it out and then refill it? Realistically, yes. Oh, brilliant news. Are there any other kind of systems that are in place at the moment? There is another one that's being looked at, which is a PVS system, which is permittivity voltage sensing. And this is a new way that looking at their electrical properties, which is rather different than the SOARS, which is the spectroscopic properties. Interesting. Now, I think I've heard that you've also been using bees to detect bombs. Is that true? Yes, we have had a look at the bees. Recently, I was at a presentation at New Scotland Yard and they've been able to train bees within 10 minutes using the Pavlos dogs type of training to detect people who have like diabetes, the smell in their breath. And they also claim that they will also be able to detect certain forms of cancer. So with this all for hindsight, they thought that bees might be able to detect explosives. And we've actually manufactured pure explosive of the bees. And we found that the bees couldn't actually detect the pure explosive. But what it could detect was the additives from the manufacturing factual explosives so these are the volatile additives so in one way it might work but unfortunately it's not the pure explosives the bees can detect so we're not going to be seeing swarms of bees at customs anytime soon then no and i I must admit i felt really sorry for the bees actually (laughs) another thing i always thought to myself was could the public actually trust ourselves in bees (laughs) that's the other thing so um, i don't think you'll see them soon no So you spend your time trying to develop new types of explosives that can evade detection methods so that you can improve these detection methods. Is that is that right? We're not, we're not actually developing explosives to evade it. What we have the capability to do is to manufacture improvised explosives. And these are the ones that are very similar to the terrorist type of explosives, which, of course, that's what you're want your detectors to detect and we I must admit most detectors will detect the explosives the hardest thing is they go off with everything else as well so like the perfume so it's sort of non-goes which is the most difficult things what you might have in the bottle might not be an explosive it might be shampoo and it can still flag it up I don't know shampoo does but Chanel number five certainly (laughs) will do just something that's quite volatile 
How many different types of explosives are there and how can you make one thing that can detect all of them? There's numerous explosives out there and the hardest thing is that it's very difficult to make one thing that will detect an explosive. So you will probably have an, an array of detectors. So maybe using the SOARS, the Rama spectroscopy, linked to maybe this one that does the electrical properties. And we also do another one for a European Union contract on colour metrics, which is another technique where polymers will change colour when they come into contact with explosive vapour. So I don't think you will, will be rely on one technique there'd be an array of techniques and I imagine it must be quite tricky as well to keep sort of one step ahead as people keep developing these new homemade explosives very quickly can you tell me how you go about trying to do that well, in respect, you read the literature, you keep in contact with what's going on out there. You also realise with obviously the Home Office and the other areas which also keep an eye on what's out there. And we try as chemists to predict what might be the next type of homemade explosives. The people are making there are chemists. We are chemists, so hopefully we'll be on the same wavelength. Fascinating. And I'm really heartened to hear that I soon might not have to buy those tiny little things of shampoo that only last me one wash of my hair. Me Thank, too. <laughs> thanks so much, Jackie Ackerman. My pleasure. You might have to ditch the Chanel number no. five, though, Ginny. Mm, yeah, that, that there's an advertising campaign in that for <laughs> Chanel number no. five, isn't it? Like, you know, detonate your emotion or something. I'm sure there's something in it for them. Now, one way to smuggle illicit cargoes, whether they're explosives or other substances like drugs, is in suitcases or your hand luggage. But because scanning and opening these to test them is relatively easy, criminals have changed their tactics. A recent trend has been for drugs to be dissolved in alcoholic drinks like rum. Now, this is a headache for customs officers because it means that they need to open and therefore potentially destroy bottles in a shipment to be able to test them. Now, scientists are fighting back using a light-scattering technique we've just heard about called Raman spectroscopy that can see what's inside a liquid inside a bottle without having to open it. Amelia Perry went to meet the researchers behind the breakthrough. I'm currently with Dr Tasnim Munchie and Dr Richard Telford at Bradford University, scientists that are using a technique called Raman spectroscopy, which uses a trick of the light to detect drugs dissolved in liquids. Raman spectroscopy is a very useful technique. It's fast, easy to use, and with recent new developments in software, it's got to the stage where it doesn't need a trained scientist to use the instrument, especially in security settings. So how does Raman spectroscopy work, Richard? Raman spectroscopy works by shining a laser directly onto the sample. The light interacts with the sample and gives us what we call a spectrum, which is essentially like a chemical fingerprint of that sample. These can then be matched against databases that people have built up, and it then tells us exactly what that sample is. And this has obviously got great uses in finding drug samples in a forensic sense. With Raman spectroscopy, we can choose to focus the laser light directly through the side of the container that we're interested in. For example, we can focus that laser straight through the side of a bottle or through a plastic bag, and we can actually collect the spectrum from the material that's contained within that. We then moved into the laboratory in order to see exactly how this technique works. Upon entry into the lab, I was confronted by a rather large machine, which looked a lot like a microscope attached to a giant metal box, around two metres long in total. When turned on, the metal box generates a very strong laser beam that is focused through the microscope lens onto the drug sample, and the readout that is created, called a Raman spectrum, appears on the computer screen, ready for analysis. So I'm just going to bring into focus a very small crystal of the cocaine sample that I've put on the microscope slide, which is then going to allow us to expose that to the laser energy and acquire a Raman spectrum. 
the series of peaks that we can now see on screen give us a chemical signature or fingerprint, if you like, of the cocaine sample that we've just analysed. By matching that to databases that we've previously acquired, we can get a result. We then moved back into the office to look at a handheld version of the large piece of instrumentation we had tested out in the laboratory. It has been developed by Thermo Scientific and has been named TrueNARC. It works in exactly the same way as a larger lab-based instrument. It has inbuilt database of a large number of drugs, ranging all the way from things like cocaine, ketamine, LSD, ecstasy. This device is small enough to fit into your hands, and Tasmin right now is actually shining a laser coming out of the side into a sample pot. So she simply presses a button, and on the screen it says, Scanning in Progress. So what's happening here, Tasnim? The TrueNARC system works in exactly the same way as the lab-based instrument. It's scanning the sample, and instead of giving us a very complicated spectrum, it matches it against our database, and it's clearly come up. It's shown that it's a ketamine sample, and we've um, analysed the sample through... Uh, a nice clear glass bottle. So obviously we don't always get drugs in nice clear bottles. So we've got another sample here. We've got cocaine dissolved in rum in a brown glass bottle. So we're going to just try this. And it's clearly shown up. It's cocaine hydrochloride. So what are the benefits of this handheld device, Tasmin? So as we've just seen, it's a really quick system to use. It takes about 30 seconds to collect a spectrum. It's portable, so it's battery powered, so we can use it anywhere does not need a trained scientist to use it and it saves us a lot of work in terms of sending off samples to labs and it's very, very specific so it'll tell us whether something's a sugar or whether it's a drug of abuse. And where can this device be used? So it can be used in airports by customs departments to check for smuggling of drugs of abuse in large shipments of alcohol, for example. It can be used by police forces and is currently being used by a number of national and international police departments where they can uh, get a very, very quick analysis of what types of drugs they may have confiscated from people they've arrested. So it seems like a really effective system, but are there any limitations? There are some limitations. You know, for example, if it's a very, very complex mixture, would the instrument be able to pick it up? We think so. You know, we've tried it with a number of different mixtures and it does pick up mixtures. With regards to different coloured liquids, we know that we can work through coloured glass. We've tried green, we've tried brown glass. And we've also tried it in rum samples, so, you know, brown liquids. But there will be some liquids where colour can be an issue. With the big lab-based instruments, we've tried different wavelengths of light and that seems to work quite effectively and that can be incorporated into new portable instruments. And again, the instrument is only sort of as good as the database. New drugs are continually coming onto the market and we can't really keep up with new legal highs. We are working with the University of Lincoln's forensics department as well as the manufacturers of the instruments to add to the database continuously. What other applications are there for Raman spectroscopy as a technique? So Raman spectroscopy is used in a a huge variety of application areas. In a similar way to the drugs analysis in airports that we've already talked about, uh, the technique's been successfully used to detect explosive samples or even find ivory samples being smuggled into the country. I use the technique primarily for analysis of pharmaceutical materials where, for example, we can use it to detect different solid forms of prescribed pharmaceuticals. And it's also applied, for example, in food analysis in, in the food industry. And also forgery of art, looking at age and composition of paint, so you can age paintings. And finally, it's been um, sent to Mars on the next ExoMars mission to check signatures of life. So a vast variety of applications. Tasnim Munshi and Richard Telford from the Department of Chemical and Forensic Science at Bradford University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ginny Smith, and with Chris Smith.
In a moment, the company who've made real-life robocops to replace police and security officers on patrol. Before that, do the cutting-edge technologies that we've been discussing to detect drugs and other dangers mean that more traditional practices, like the use of sniffer dogs, for example, have had their day? Well, hopefully not, because Sergeant Owen Rogers from the Cambridgeshire Police Dog Unit is here to tell us how our furry four-legged friends can help us out. Hi there, Owen. Hello there. So we often see sniffer dogs at the airport, but what exactly are they looking for? Well, they'll be looking for a number of different substances. We have dogs that... um detect explosives and we have other dogs that will be looking for drugs or cash or weapons. Why do you use dogs? Is it because of their particularly good sense of smell? Yeah, dogs have massively enhanced sense of smell over humans and also they can detect such small traces of any substance that might be being uh, imported into the country. Just how good is their sense of smell compared to ours? It's not exactly known. Estimates vary between 100 and uh, 1 million times better sense of smell than humans. It all depends on two things within the dog. First being the size of the olfactory membrane. Estimates reckon that a German Shepherd dog would have um, 100 million olfactory cells in comparison to a human's 5 million olfactory cells. But it's not just that. It's the um, area within the brain that is set aside for the detection of smells. And once again, um, it's massively enhanced in a dog than a human. Again, estimates are about 10% of the brain in a uh, dog and about 0.25% in a human. As well as being able to smell all these different smells, they'll actually be able to tell them apart as well. Scent discrimination is what we call it. So, for instance, a dog will be able to tell constituent ingredients of any substance, whereas a human could just smell um, the entire uh, substance. For instance, tomato ketchup, we would just smell tomato ketchup, (laughs) but a dog would smell all the E numbers, the sugar, the tomatoes themselves and the salt. Are there certain dogs that are better at this than others, certain breeds? We tend to use gun dog breeds because of their level of drive. So we'll use spaniels or labradors, sheep dogs are used, but generally gun dog breeds, even up to the um, continental pointer breeds. I guess a chihuahua wouldn't be quite as intimidating either. Intimidation isn't a partic- <laughs> particularly high on the list, but a chihuahua, I think, would, uh, due to its size, find it difficult to cover the area. Yeah. How do you go about training a dog to become a sniffer dog? It's not just the breed that counts, it's the actual dog. And um, once you've identified a dog that has sufficient drive, you then introduce the substances and you make the dog interested in the substance by rewarding it for sniffing the substance in question. So lots um, of lots of dog biscuits. Well, uh, personally, I'm not in favour of biscuits, <laughs> but a tennis ball goes down very, very well mm-hmm. indeed. And you will condition the dog essentially to um, stare at the source of the scent until the delivery of a dog, uh, of a delivery of a dog, <laughs> delivery of a ball. So dogs are not that intelligent and they will actually think that the ball will appear from the source. <laughs> How do you stop them getting distracted if someone had some tasty dog treats in their pocket or something? Well, that is very important. However, for some reason, dogs just take to it and they are so driven by the delivery of their toy (laughs) or the praise or whichever other method of um, reward we give them that they will avoid those distractions. Can you give me an example of something that the dogs have found? We've recently had a very, very large find of heroin, the street value of which would have funded the existence of the dog section for many, many years. Another excellent job was uh, an armed robbery where one of my handlers arrived, tracked the robber from the scene to his home address. 
They then um, found him, and then he got his other dog out and found the weapon that had been used in, in the robbery. So it's the, the whole thing that was all down to that one handler. Do you think there's any way, if you wrapped it in sort of lots and lots of layers, that you could ever hide the scent of something? Well, you have to be so forensically aware in order to ensure that there are there are no leakages of anything. And there is no scent without moisture. And as a result, over time, substances will dry out. So, yes, there are ways of doing it, but you've got to be very, very good. And how long does it take to train the dog? And is it a case of once it's trained, then it's good to go for years and years and years? Or do you have to keep refreshing them? It depends on what you're trying to achieve. But for the sense to become imprinted within the dog, it can take just a matter of a few weeks. But yes, you have to refresh the dogs very, very regularly just to reinforce the reward for the find that they have. Owen, have you got tons of this stuff at home for personal consumption? I've got got loads of it. (laughs) Have you really? And you must presumably have this material in in the workplace and in the car for dog retraining. Yeah, we, um, we do hold substances and they are used regularly for training, yes. Owen, thank you very much. Owen Rogers, who is from Cambridgeshire Police Dog Unit. Now, from real-life canine detectors to the world of the robotic canine, and if you don't remember, canine was Doctor Who's robo-dog. There's a US company, and they're called Nightscope, and they've launched a device called the K5, which bears a striking resemblance to R2-D2 in Star Wars. That was the robot that looked like a dustbin on wheels. The idea is that very soon these robo-cops will support and maybe even replace police and security personnel on the beat. These robots are fitted with a range of sensors. They're updated continuously with crime and intelligence data from their locality, so they can even predict when and where crimes might be about to happen. And this means that they can focus their patrols on just those areas. Stacey Stevens is the K5's co-creator. Basically, what we have is a fully autonomous robot with a payload of sensors on board. And those sensors are always looking for any type of abnormal behavior. When it detects an abnormal behavior, it will send an alert to a security operations center so that somebody can look at the information and determine whether or not they need to deploy assets to that area. Well, this really is RoboCop. To a degree, it's definitely more observe and report than it is something that's offensive. This is for looking. It's not for acting. Can you just describe it for us? It's called the K5 because it is actually about five feet tall. It's about three feet wide and it is a little pill shaped. It looks like a very large R2-D2. I just wondered if the K5 was going to be a play on Doctor Who's dog, which used to be called K9, of course. Definitely not. There's no exterminating here. One of the obstacles that we needed to overcome was social acceptance. And you have to have something that is designed in a way that people like to engage. You cannot predict and prevent crime without the help of the average person. And so we wanted this to be something that was extremely friendly and very approachable. So that's why it's incredibly a beautiful machine in and of itself. Can we just talk briefly about how it actually physically works? Uh, So the K5 is an electric platform. It uses lithium-ion batteries to charge it. Uh, It does self-monitoring of its own health. So as the battery level drops, uh, it will opportunistically charge itself on a charge pad. And while it is charging, it has the ability to continue monitoring the surroundings. Onboard each machine is a sensor payload that includes video, 
audio recording, hyperlocal weather, radiation, chemical, biological, airborne pathogen sensors. And all of those sensors are constantly looking for anything abnormal. So you have a baseline of activity. Once something goes outside of that baseline of activity, it flags it as an anomaly. And then it starts looking at other data. So we can pull in data from local governments to see what's the historical data, what are the crime stats in that area. And all of that data is then run through a predictive analytics engine. And it determines whether there is an alert that is worthy of showing to somebody. And then once the software determines that there is an alert, then it will send that to the security operations center for a human to actually look at through a web browser interface. And then they can determine whether or not they need to deploy a human to take a strategic action. Talk us through actually how you see this being used then. Where will you deploy it and how will it help with our present security situation? A really great example would be kind of looking at airports. You look at the way that security is done at airports, you have a lot of internal security and minimal external security. So you could put this along the perimeter of an airport with the number of sensors that are on board. You can look at video feeds, uh, listen to audio. You have license plate recognition on it. Uh, you have the potential for putting radiation, chemical, and biological sensors, airborne pathogens. And then as they patrol around the airport perimeter, they can be gathering intelligence and really start to get a better look at how secure the property is and keep it that way. Couldn't someone who really is hell-bent on being nefarious just run up behind it and shove a bin bag? over the top of it. Anything that can possibly happen will happen. So whether it's somebody trying to tip it over or trying to kidnap it, or as you said, put a bag over its head, it's going to happen. However, as things are happening, it's learning its environment. It knows what's normal behavior and what's not normal behavior. And as somebody's approaching, if they're doing that type of furtive gesture, it will be caught and it will be sent back to a security operations center because if any of the sensors are rendered inoperable, uh, it'll send an immediate alert to somebody to look and say, okay, what's going on? Secondly, we don't just deploy these in single unit applications. We deploy multiple units so they can watch after each other. So just because you've covered one doesn't mean there's not another one locally that can see what's going on as well. And what about sort of community-based policing? Could these be deployed onto the streets of, of towns or housing areas to keep an eye on people's cars or their houses at night? I think the long-term implications are very widespread. I think we have numerous different applications in which we can deploy the robots. Early on, our target was really to try to do things that were more easily accessible. So corporate campuses, data centers, anywhere where you would see private security like open-air malls and things like that, uh, parking lots, parking garages. But yes, absolutely. What about the cost of these things, both in terms of actually making one and putting it in place, and then also operating it. We designed K5 with exactly that in mind. Uh, so we actually sell them as a subscription. All-inclusive, it includes the robot, the maintenance, and the user interface, so it's incredibly affordable. Yes, indeed, that must be sort of cheaper, in fact, than paying a person to walk along the same route. Uh, it's not meant to replace humans, but it is meant to augment the way they do business. So uh, we want to make sure that they have the data that they have necessary to make the strategic decisions and give them more information and better intelligence. So when can I buy one and how much is it going to cost me? 
You'll be able to subscribe to the service starting in 2015, and it will cost you $6.25 an hour. Right now, we're limiting deployments to 24-7 operations, uh, so that comes to about $4,500 per month for 24-7 coverage. Well, $6 an hour doesn't sound too expensive to me. It's cheaper than a policeman, I think, isn't it? That was Stacey Stevens with his Robocop from Nightscope. And thank you also to our other guests this week, Owen Rogers, Jackie Akavan, and also Ian Crawford. Now, finally, for our question of the week, Sarah Shuston is taking to the skies. This week, we buckle our seatbelts ready for takeoff with this question from listener Paul Jen. I was on an interminable flight from New York to Hong Kong a few days ago, and I don't understand why airplane manufacturers aren't working on increasing the speed of air travel. So why can't we fly just a little bit faster? Is it a case of better design and engineering, or will we be stuck at this slow speed forever? Well, we're off to a flying start as Neil Scott, head of engineering at Airbus, shot back fast with this answer. In short, speed costs fuel and money. If you're driving your car at 40 miles an hour and then accelerate to 80 miles an hour, what happens to fuel consumption? It goes up. The same is true on an aircraft. The faster you go, the more fuel you burn. Drag, which causes the increase in fuel burn, is actually proportional to the square of the speed. So drag increases at a faster rate than increasing speed. So you can't just get there more quickly. You have to pay for it. One of the biggest costs for an airline, of course, is fuel. Therefore, the likelihood of us designing a supersonic aircraft for major commercial flying is probably not going to happen anytime soon. Basically, more speed means more air resistance means that cheap holiday flight you were planning on booking won't be so cheap anymore. Another advantage of decreasing fuel burn, of course, is there's less CO2 emissions, less nitrous oxide emissions and less noise. So we all win. Well, it's good to hear that we all benefit from flying slower. But is it a flight of fancy to think I won't be stuck in the air for 13 hours at a time as a jet-setting grandma? At the moment, it's not possible to build a super efficient plane that's also super speedy and cost efficient. But with future innovations in propulsion systems, that's engines, based, for example, on hydrogen or electricity, it might well be possible in the future. Maybe someday then. Thanks, Neil. In the meantime, Paul, maybe try to get some shut-eye on the red-eye. For next week, Matthew Boniface wrote in this yawn fest of a question. Why do I yawn and why do cats yawn? And can I catch a yawn from a cat? (sighs) What do you think? If you know the answer to Michael's question, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on our forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That is it for this week. Thank you very much to Amelia Perry and Greer Jackson for their help with production. And next time, do join us as we go surfing the internet and browsing the mysterious dark web. This is a place where you can apparently hire a hitman, steal someone's identity and even buy drugs that you shouldn't be buying. We'll find out all about where it is and how to access it next week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the UPSRC and the STFC. My name is Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.